all of us enjoy stories of one kind or another, and stories that center on the conflict between good and evil resonate with all of us on some level. Right? Maybe you are captivated by stories uh, of World War II, right, and the and the real battle between good and evil that took place in the real world during that war. Or maybe in uh, maybe you're interested in, in true crime stories where uh, people are trying to stop or catch people who are uh, committing real acts of evil. Or maybe you're more interested in the way the real conflict between good and evil is portrayed in some of our modern mythologies like the Lord of the Rings or the Marvel movies or Harry Potter or something like that. Uh, all of us, though, uh, are touched and affected and engaged by those stories of the battle between good and evil because the battle between good and evil touches all of us. Right? And it, in the most realistic stories of good versus evil, and I don't just mean the real ones because sometimes the stories about history are told in a way that's not very realistic, but the most realistic stories, whether real history or whether uh, imagined myths and, and things like that, the most realistic stories about the conflict between good and evil show us that that conflict is both external and internal. It is both cosmic and personal. In other words, it reminds us that evil is not only out there but that evil is also <clears throat> in here. The Apostle Paul reckoned with both levels of this battle between good and evil. He reckoned with the cosmic level uh, in places like Ephesians 6, right, where he says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He knew that there was a real evil outside of us that we must resist and that we must stand against. But in places like Romans 7, where we'll be focusing our attention this morning, Paul also reckons with the reality of the evil that is inside of us, that we must also fight against and resist. That's why that struggle between good and evil, both external and internal, is something that every Christian can relate to. So I invite you to turn with me, if you haven't already, to Romans 7. We're going to finish up this chapter this morning by looking at verses 21 to 25 of Romans chapter 7. All through this chapter, Paul has been dealing with our relationship to the law, and in particular here towards the end, our relationship with sin, even as believers. Not everybody interprets Romans 7 that way, but I take this chapter as describing Paul's genuine experience as a Christian reckoning with the sin that still haunts him, that still dwells within him. And I think um, most of us, if not all of us, resonate um, 
with what Paul is saying and, and uh, recognize that this is something that we don't uh, escape from just because we've become believers. So let me read these last few verses for us, Romans 7, 21 to 25. Paul says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And so you see right there at the beginning of that passage that Paul is reckoning with this struggle between good and evil. He says, I want to do what's right, I want to do what's good, but evil is right there with me all the time. So I have found this to be a law, he says, and there when he uses the word law, he's not talking about the law of Moses, right? He's talking about a law like we talk about, you know, Newton's third law of motion or whatever. It's a, a, a law that comes from observing the way things usually are, not a law that says this is what you ought to do, right? So this is what Paul has noticed. This is, this is what he has observed. I find it to be a law. I find it to be a, um, an observable truth from my experience, Right, that when I want to do the right thing, when I want to do something good, when I want to obey God, when I want to love my neighbor as myself, when I want to love my wife like Christ loves the church, I find it to be a law that when I want to do that, evil lies close at hand. There has maybe never been a time when you or I wanted to do the right thing and there was not at least a whisper or a nudge somewhere inside of us saying, nah, you don't want to do that. Think about this as an example. Let's say um, you haven't heard from one of your friends in a while and uh, it just comes to your mind that you ought to call them and encourage them. Right? That's a good thing. That's Loving your neighbor as yourself. And almost immediately after you have that impulse to call this person and encourage them, then something in your head says, well, when's the last time they called you? In fact, when's the last time any of your friends checked up on you? Why should you always be the one doing all the work? Why should you always be the one reaching out and, 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 and trying and... and do they really deserve that phone call? After all, you got other things you could do. That's just one example, simple example of the kind of thing that Paul is saying. When I want to do right, evil is always right there. There's always that nudge, at least sometimes it's a shove. There's always that impulse to do wrong, even in the very moment when there's at least part of me that wants to do the right thing. 
That is my normal, everyday experience, Paul says. That is the law that I have found to be true in my life, even as a believer. And one of the reasons why I think we can uh, make a good argument for Paul talking about his experience as a Christian here is because of what he says next in verse 22. He says, for I delight in the law of God. I just don't know any non-Christians who would say that. I just don't know anybody who's not been saved by Jesus who would say, I love the Bible. I love God's law. I love the commandment. That's, that's evidence of a new heart, right? That's evidence of, of regeneration, of a change, of salvation. And so Paul says, I want to do right because I delight in God's law in my inner being or in my new man, the, the new creation that I am in Christ, that part of me loves God, loves God's word, wants to do the things that please God. That's the part of you that resonates with Psalm 119 that we read from earlier. Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. Right? There's a part of you right, that says yes and amen to that. And then there's another part of you that says, well, sometimes. Maybe not really. You know, there's this conflict in us, right? But Paul says, at the core of whom I, who I am, in my inner man, my, the part of me that has been made new by Christ, I do love God's word. I do delight in God's law. But if I delight in the law of God, if there's part of me that loves the Bible, if there's part of me that says, yes, I want to do what Jesus says, yes, I want to follow him, then why don't I so often? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Have you ever wrestled with that? If I you know, sit in church and, and hear the, the sermon or hear the scripture reading, and in, in my heart there's an amen, and then when I walk out the door there's a never mind, where did the never mind come from? Why is there this conflict? Why is there this difference between what I want to do and what I actually do. It's very important for us when we begin to think about that and wrestle with that. It's very important for us that we know the biblical answer to that question of why that happens, of why we are so conflicted, why we don't always do the things that we want to do. And the reason why it's important we know the biblical answer to that question is because Satan wants to give us a different answer. When you are aware of this conflict in you, what Satan wants to say to you is, you know, the reason why you don't do the things that you say you want to do is because you don't really want to do them. You're not really saved. You're not really a Christian. You're, you're trying to be. But let's be honest, right? You mess up all the time. You so rarely follow through with what the, the things you say you're going to do. You know, you say you're going to read the Bible. You say you're going to come to church. You say you're going to pray. You say you're going to raise your kids in a way that's biblical. But do you, you know, I mean, you're falling on your face every day, multiple times a day. He, what Satan wants you to do is he wants you to think 
that because you are struggling to obey, that you're not even saved. And if you're not even saved, then what's the point of struggling anymore? Why not just give in? Why not just be honest that you're going to fail and that you can't do it and just give in and just do what you want? That's how Satan wants you to think about it. He wants you to think that you are a lost cause because you're conflicted, because you're in a battle, because you have to struggle. He wants you to think that fighting sin is pointless. He wants you to think that by resisting sin, you're trying to prove something, prove yourself to be something that you're not. But he's wrong. The Bible says that the reason why we often fail to do the things we want to do, the good things we want to do, the reason why we struggle to do the things that in our heart of hearts we really want to do is because sin still dwells in us even as Christians, even as new creations in Christ, and that sin that dwells in us is waging a constant war against us to keep us from doing the things that we really genuinely want to do. Look at what he says in verse 23. After he says, I delight in the law of God, then in verse 23 he says, but, that's not the whole story, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. All right, so that's, a, that's kind of a long phrase, but notice the last part. He says, he speaks of this law of sin that dwells in my members. Remember, uh, if you look back up to verse 20, At the end of verse 20, he talks about the sin that dwells within me. Some of the same thing here at the end of verse 23. That sin is a power, a hostile power that is not merely outside of us, but that still dwells in us. So this conflict between good and evil is internal. Right? It's not just somewhere out there occasionally Satan is trying to you know, bombard me from the outside. I've got problems of my own on the inside. Right? I've got sin dwelling in me trying to nudge me in the wrong direction. And then I've got my inner man or what he calls in verse 23 the law of my mind. Right? Those mean basically the same thing. That's the part of me that's been renewed. It's the part of me that's been changed. And the part of me that's a uh, that I'm a, I'm a new creation, right? So we got this part of me that wants to do what's right, wants to please God, that delights in God's law. And what he says is, when I look at myself sort of from the outside, what I see is there's a battle going on in my body. There's a battle going on in my flesh, in my life. And I've got this, this part, this, my, this mind, this inner man that is... Uh, new and that loves God and loves His Word and wants to do what's pleasing Him, but I've also got this other thing going on inside of me, this sin that still dwells in me. My, my sin's been forgiven, 
But sin has not been eradicated from my life. Sin still dwells in me, and that sin dwelling in me is constantly waging war against the part of me that wants to do what God wants me to do. So the reason why I so often fail to do what God wants me to do is not because I'm not saved, but because I have not yet been freed from the presence of sin. See, when I was saved, when I turned from my sin, and I trusted in Jesus, and I became a new creation, my sin was forgiven. And sin's power over me was taken away, so it can't make me sin. I'm no longer enslaved to sin, but I, I was not yet delivered from sin's presence. So you're not going to be delivered from sin's presence until Jesus comes back and brings you into the new creation where there is no more sin and no more curse and no more death and no more sorrow. Not until then will you be completely free from sin. We don't even know what it feels like to not be tempted. To not have that nudge, that whisper, that that tug that says, you know, you know, instead of being nice, you could be mean right now. You know, instead of doing this thing, you could just do something for yourself instead of serving this person over here. But we don't even know what it's like to live without that presence. Right? That's the sin that dwells within us. And that's not going to go away until Jesus comes back. So when you became a Christian, right, you were saved. You were set free. But you weren't removed from the battle. In fact, if anything, once you become a Christian, the battle becomes more real, more potent, more powerful. Because now you know you're in it. Because now there's a part of you that doesn't want to give in. Before you just didn't really care that much. You were just enjoying doing what you wanted to do. But now that you want to do what God wants you to do, and there's this other thing inside of you that's resisting that and trying to encourage you to go the other way, now you're more aware than ever that you're in this conflict. Listen to how um, C.S. Lewis put it. C.S. Lewis, as any of you know who've read C.S. Lewis, he just has a way of putting things that is so clear and, and potent and helpful. And here's what he says about this experience. He says, No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of the wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And that is why it is not until after you become a Christian that you realize how deep the darkness in you goes. That is why sometimes after you've been a Christian for two years, four years, six years, you might start to wonder, Am I, even, am I even saved? I mean, I feel like I'm worse off in some ways now 
than when I first became a Christian. I'm more aware of my sin. I feel like I sin more now than when I turned to Jesus in the first place. And the reason for that is not that you actually sin more. The reason for that is that now you're actually trying not to, and so you're more aware of how strong those temptations are and how often you give in to them and how real that power inside of you that's trying to persuade you not to follow God really is. So that's one of the reasons why I feel like Romans 7 is such a powerful and important chapter is because it's very easy to think, to get the wrong idea about the Christian life, and to think that once you begin following Jesus, that your life is going to be easier, that your struggles are going to be simpler and fewer and far between, when in fact often the opposite is the case. You become more aware of your sin, the struggles get harder, the struggles last longer, The darkness begins to seem deeper that you are trying to push back against. And the reason for that is you're finally pushing back against it. You're finally figuring out, beginning to figure out the strength of that opposition of that sin that is still dwelling inside of you. So where does that lead Paul and where does that leave us? It leads Paul to this this climactic cry in verse 24 where he says wretched man that I am he didn't say wretched man that I was there are plenty of places where Paul talks about you know the, the man he was before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus persecuting the church and and all the rest here he says wretched man that I am why does he say that he says that because in the middle of this conflict, right, when you, um, and this doesn't, this is not our constant experience as Christians, but it does happen to us, right, where uh, there is maybe some sin in particular, or maybe just a hundred little sins in general that you feel like you've been fighting for so long and you feel like you're not gaining as much ground as you ought to or maybe you feel like you're losing ground and eventually you just say, what is wrong with me? I feel like a wreck. I I mean, I just feel like a mess. And maybe on the outside it looks like everything is going fine, but I know the battle that's going on internally in my heart and in my mind. And I'm just not where I feel like I ought to be, not where I want to be. And I'm sick of this. And Paul resonates with that. Paul cried out out of that experience. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And when he says that, he's not talking about who's going who's gonna to save me like for the first time. He's he's not crying out for uh, forgiveness of sin. This is not the cry of someone who's turning to Jesus for the first time. He's already covered that ground in chapter 3 and chapter 4 and chapter 5. We're talking about somebody who's already a believer. But what has happened is uh, oftentimes we we have talked about salvation, we have talked about the gospel in a way that makes us think, that, that cry of who will deliver me only comes out once. Right? In that moment of conversion, in that moment of initial salvation, who will deliver me? God, please save me. 
And then we never have to say that again. But what Paul is showing us here is that cry for deliverance is not something that a Christian uh, expresses only once when they initially turn to Jesus. It's something we continue to express throughout our lives as Christians. That we are continually saying, God, you have saved me. You have forgiven me. I belong to you. But I still feel like I need to be rescued. I still feel like I need to deliver. I I still need you to rescue me from this sin that remains in me. I'm still longing for the day when the salvation you gave to me when I first turned to Jesus. I'm longing for the day when that is finally brought to its fullness. And I don't have to struggle like this anymore. And I don't have to wrestle and I don't have to fight and I don't have to fail and fall on my face. I'm so sick of falling on my face. Who will deliver me? And he knows the answer because it's the same answer that he had when he asked God to deliver him the first time. It's the same answer of who's going to deliver us now in the present and who's going to deliver us in the future. It's our God and Father who saves us through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, it's helpful for us to remember that salvation for the Christian is both a, well, not both, is all three, a past, a present, and a future reality. It's not only a past reality. It is a past reality, and that's where it starts, right? But it is also a present, God help me, God save me, God rescue me from myself, And from this sin. And it is also a future reality. When Paul says um, in 1 Corinthians 15, when he he says that the saying is going to come to pass, where, O death, is your victory? And where, O death, is your sting? But that saying is not going to come to pass, he says, until Jesus returns and uh, we're caught up to be with Him, and our bodies are raised, and uh, what was perishable now becomes imperishable, what was mortal now becomes immortal, then will come to to pass the saying, where, O death, is your victory, and where, O death, is your sting. There's a future element to the salvation that God has given us, and that's what Paul is longing for in verse 24 and verse 25. When, O God... Are you going to deliver me from this body of death? This place where I continue to struggle with sin. When is that going to be over? I know how it's going to come to an end. It's going to come to an end when God brings it to an end through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's his hope. That's his confidence. That's his expectation. He's going to talk about how we long for that later in Romans chapter 8. When he he talks about how we groan along with creation, for the day of redemption, for the day of our adoption, when when our bodies are resurrected and glorified. But in the meantime, we have to wait. Notice that the second half of verse 25 goes right back to where he was. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Even though I'm longing for this deliverance, crying out for this deliverance, I know where this deliverance is going to come from. 
It hasn't yet happened. I've not yet been delivered from this body of death. With my flesh I still serve the law of sin. But with my mind I serve the law of God. I'm still a conflicted man. I still live in between. The moment when Jesus saved me. And the moment in the future when he will set me free completely from sin. When I'll see him face to face and be as perfectly like him as it's possible for a human being to be. The good news that Paul is pointing us toward here is that this division cannot, and praise God, will not last forever. There is coming a day when we will be able to say, not with anguish, but with overflowing joy, Wretched man that I was. Look who has saved me from that body of death. And we will see him face to face and we will rejoice in his presence and the battle will be over and the eternal joy will begin. And that's why we're able to hang on now. That's why we stay in the fight now. Because we already know who wins. And we're looking forward to that day when he comes.